Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the No Recipe Required podcast. I'm your host, Leslie Taylor. This week, I am speaking with um, an old friend of mine, uh, James, uh, James the Somme. So he's a sommelier. We're talking about wine. It's been a little while, I think, since I had a conversation about wine with anyone. This is a real deep dive. A lot of insider information. Uh, James works for a wine agency, so he knows all the, you know, comings and goings of the wine industry and he's such a wealth of knowledge so it's a real real deep dive in fact it took us like 20 minutes before we even actually got to the tasting part <laughs> he had sent me um a suggestion of a wine that we could taste together so uh yeah 20 minutes in we finally get around to tasting that wine so i will be posting uh, what that wine is uh, in the show notes um, plus all of uh, james's contact information this is a longer episode than i've done in the past so uh strap in for like over an hour of conversation about wine. Hope you enjoy it. So welcome everyone and welcome to my guest, James Oatway, who's going, we're going to talk about wine and a bunch of other stuff today. Um, Oftentimes on podcasts, the host like gives this big long intro on who their guest is, but I think I would rather you give your intro in terms of like who you are, why should anyone listen to you about wine, and then we'll kind of go from there. Uh, okay, well, my name is James Oatway. I'm located out in Oakville. I've been working for a Ontario wine agent since 2000, which is going to be 23 years in, in uh, September. And I can't believe anything's 23 years. I can't believe I know. doing the same thing for 20 years. I can't believe I haven't talked to you in probably about 20 years. I know, I know. Like, I think we met back in, I th- want to say like 2001, probably. Yeah. 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 It really seems like no time has has gone by, really. But I know. But you think, oh, yeah, I haven't talked to Leslie in 20 years. But the, the thing, the reason why that is so odd is because of social media. I mean, I've been liking things and, and commenting on things and following you for a little while, last couple of years anyway. So you feel like you're connected to the person. Meanwhile, it's like, haven't spoken in 20 years. Or seen or, each other in person, probably in 20 oh, years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 It's, sure. uh, I know it's kind of weird. I think uh, a lot of us are kind of feeling that way as well. So you've been, you work for a wine agency for 20 years and what kind of capacity, what roles did you have with them? I started out driving a van and watching, uh, well, the agency I work for is, our book is probably a little thicker than anybody else's in Ontario, which means we've got about 200 producers and they're all from all over the world. So uh, taking a a pickup job because, you know, you finish university and you kind of drift around and you think, what am I going to do with my life? And I just started driving for them for a couple of years. And you realize that there's a lot going on behind what what is being sold you know we're being at wine shows and being in in people's homes and and being at events and tasting all these things i thought this is a waste of time to just not spend time with this so i started taking courses in college and took my sommelier courses in 2011 and 2012 and got my certification with the Canadian Association of, Private, of uh, Professional Sommeliers and the Court of Masters in the States. And as soon as that happened, um, I was more comfortable with sales in my company and more comfortable with um, my, my own knowledge about wine. And as soon as I became certified and, and got my 
certification through CAPS in Ontario, I formed uh, another <laughs> sommelier association, much to the chagrin of, of CAPS. You can, mm. They didn't really want two associations going on, but I did it because um, anywhere in the world, I mean, the, the big producers that we have, we have the biggest names in France and Italy and everywhere else in the world. But my company, the company I work for, Halpern, uh, there's there's nothing that we don't have. There's not a corner of the world that we haven't um, picked the best out of and represent. But Ontario was is this you know new world. It's you're right at home. So everyone, I mean, like a good Torontonian, you live in Toronto and you knock Toronto because that's the kind of people we are. So as soon as I got my my certification, I put on a uh, Ontario Wine Awards. We called ourselves Sosa, and we picked up um, samples from, for our first year, the first year we did it was 2012. And we, I think about 70 wineries participated and we did blind tastings. Uh, everything was sort of best red, best white, best, best Pinot Noir, best Chardonnay, best uh, Cab Franc, whatever it was, a lot of categories, a lot of work was put into it. And I was blown away by everyone saying yes to me, every place I drove to, I drove seven, 700 kilometers one day down to um, Pele Island area and back collecting samples for the event. And uh, it went really well. And the second year we did it, it went really well. And it just kind of scared me that it was going so well. And it was becoming this thing that, that I and a few people had created. And I kind of quit it just freaked me out a little too much. I was, after our second awards, we named um, Batchelor. Do you know Batchelor Wines, Ontario? Uh, maybe. It sounds vaguely familiar. Thomas Batchelor, he, he makes the, some of the best Chardonnay in Ontario. And Pinot Noir, he makes in Oregon, Ontario, and, and uh, Burgundy. He was doing a cross-the-world sort of experiment with, with these wines. But after the second time, we did the award show. Uh, I was sitting in his living room after he won. I think he won uh, the Chardonnay one. And we we're sitting there having a glass in his, uh, in his living room. And he told me, you know, we got our listing with the LCBO because of you. And I kind of, it really scared the hell out of me that, that it was that possible to do that. So I kind of gave up on that, but. So wait a second, you give up on things because you're successful at them. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> it was a little too easy and a little too much responsibility because the first time we did it, the people that won were very happy about it, but the people who didn't um, obviously weren't happy. And I wanted to publicize everyone who, who participated in the awards, but I found the second year we did it, we didn't publish the list of everyone who participated as we were giving the awards out because it, it seemed like sort of a slight to the, those who didn't, you know, meddle in something. Right. So um, it, I just realized how important it, it was to um, deal in, in something like, it's really personal, it's family businesses, it's, it's people's livelihoods. And it, it just kind of set me back how easy it was to have a hand in their, um, future. So I wasn't prepared to, to, to be able to participate properly with that. I, I wish I hadn't quit and I wish I was still doing it because I still do have a lot of uh, respect for what we're doing in Ontario. And we're sadly underrepresented even within our own folks because people don't really understand um, 
what the LCBO does to Ontario wineries, because the one thing that people say is, well, why would I buy uh, Ontario wine for $40 when I can buy something from California or Italy or, or, or somewhere even further away for $29? And it's like, well, there's a taxing <laughs> issue. And there's, there's a way that, that the uh, LCBO um, sets competition laws, which makes it sort of unfair in some cases, in some ways for Ontario growers. So I remember reading something, God, a while back, probably 20 years ago, because uh, my wine journey started at George Brown College, probably in the late 90s, I want to say, probably around 98, 99, I took a few courses there. And I remember reading an article, and they were talking about how, like, why is Ontario wine, I mean, they were talking Ontario specifically, because I don't think BC was not a thing here yet, like we weren't really getting any BC wines or wines from any other part of Canada, besides basically Niagara, that was the only region. Yeah. And the the question they were posing is like, why is Ontario wine so expensive in Ontario? And they were saying that in a lot of ways, they had to put the price there so that they would be competitive with California or other producers because the price, it implied a certain quality. And that if our wine was $20, they would say, well, it's only half as good as a $40 US bottle. So it must not be that good. So they would price theirs at $40 because that way they could say we're like comparable with a $40 bottle from California. I don't know what your thoughts are on that. Well, one of the problems though in Ontario is it, if you look at California and you look at specifically California wines, not, not Napa Valley, not the particular vineyards, parts of Napa or, or Sonoma, you just say California and you're looking at a 18 to $20 bottle of wine. The cost incurred to make that in California is a fifth of what it would cost in Ontario because we pay vineyard uh, workers a lot differently and it's a taxation uh, issue too and plus I mean let's say you've got a California wine that is eight bucks to create and bottle by the time you get it here the LCBO is going to tell you that they want that eight dollar bottle to be in their let's say 19, they want it to be 19 to $21 or something like that. So you've doubled the cost of that wine and they've brought it to $20. Now, if you tell an Ontario winery that I've got the same level of wine here, but it's cost me, you know, $21 to produce, then you're going to, they're going to, it's, it's going to cost more. It's going, Ontario is going to say everyone else is going up by, what is it 51 percent or something that they they ask us to do and if you do that in ontario with the amount of money it costs to produce a bottle of wine here then that same level of wine that people think is the same level is going to be 39 dollars instead of 19 and people are going to say well it's just ontario being full of itself and thinking that they're they're yeah. but then you cross the board and go into uh new york state this is a few years ago but you do that and then all of a sudden it's the reverse where some of our wines are cheaper than theirs on the shelves in the, in the Costco or something like hmm. that. So. Hmm. Yeah. I remember going to, there was a big wine store. It was like the size of a Zellers or something uh, yeah. down in Buffalo and just being yep. like a kid in a candy store because it's like they had everything. I'd never seen anything so yeah. big before it was, uh, and stuff that we just can't get here, right? Because of, and I've talked about this in previous episodes of the podcast about the influence of the LCBO and how they're the biggest uh, wine purchaser in the world. Yep. Um, and I think the SAQ is second behind them, right? In Quebec, 
Like that's, um, they have so much power because, but that also means we don't get to drink a lot of stuff because unless a producer can meet their uh, standards as far as volume and price and all of that, yeah. we'll never even see that bottle here. No, but I mean, the, the, that's what's great about having uh, a lot of space in a consignment warehouse because you can't put everything in the store. But, um, but I mean, back to your point, though, about the states, uh, a couple of guys in, in our, some of the class were from Buffalo. They crossed the border every day because we were in Niagara doing our, in Niagara College doing our work anyway. And they used to say the Americans in New York State anyway, they talk dry, but they drink sweet. So hmm. you go to a New York um, LC, well, a New York liquor store, and you'd see uh, the big section at the back that was, you know, behind glass or that, that was the vintages sort of area. A lot of California wines and maybe some Bordeaux. They weren't big into Burgundy at the time. They weren't big. There was a lot of stuff that we carry in Ontario and specialize in that just doesn't translate across the border. And but the thing with Ontario, well, with the LCBO, everybody wants in but everybody can't fit into the store and our stores aren't those giant Costco's. There's, some of them are pretty large like mm -hmm. um, Cornwall here or, or Summerhill, but um, it's good in that way that there is a little competition to get on the shelves. We can all bring in great things and sell them to the consignment warehouse. And a lot of restaurants buy through consignment because they'd rather be serving things in the restaurant that aren't on the shelves in the LCBO. I walk in the LCBO now and I go straight to the vintages section every time. I don't pass all the open shelves because I'm a snob. It, it's, it's, <laughs> I'm the same. <laughs> I'm exactly the same. But what you get is they lay out Ontario in rows that I, I don't like the merchandising because it makes it look cheap. And then you've got Argentina and Italy and all the stuff that's nine or $10 or $11, or whatever it is sitting there in the larger jugs of things and the boxes of wine. And it's at the front of the store, but those wines are not representative of any of the areas that 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 the tag on the shelf says. They're they're bulk wine that's been brought in one way or the other. And there's the Ontario bulk wine program is a different thing altogether. But uh, I just hate the way that there's so much of the store that they they lay the wine out like it is a Costco or something like that. But then you get into vintages, and at least you're um, you're dissecting countries a little more clearly and a little more specifically than just the general Italy or, or France that are out there on the shelves. But um, And vintages doesn't necessarily mean expensive either. Like you can get $15 bottles at vintages. Yeah. Yeah. It, usually the difference between, it's different programs. I mean, they've got their consignment program, they've got their general list program, they've got uh, the vintages program. So we bring wines in through different means to get into different places. But it's all about competition, which is the good thing in that it, if we bring something in and put it on a shelf in the LCBO and it doesn't sell, then they're not going to give us that space for the next time we bring it in. Let's say you can bring it in through your, um, your consignment warehouse because your customers are buying it, but apparently ours are on to other things. But just for me this year, I've I've decided that um, uh, starting the, the podcast that I'm doing for wine, this is the irony of this is that I'm not going to drink this year. Oh, I'm only going to taste. I've, I've, I stopped this at the beginning of December. I'm going to go to the end of 2023. And I found that uh, COVID really did something different to it did something to the restaurant business to our business. 
our business was great for the first year of COVID because people stayed home and drank and we, we had, it was Christmas every day for months, but I'm hearing the same thing from other people that I'm feeling now. There's sort of a, I was talking to a friend, a coworker the other night, and we were saying there's so much about wine that I've forgotten in the last five or six years because we've been moving through our paces and going through our routines and, and, and uh, just sort of doing what we've been doing to survive through COVID. And then you get into patterns and you just kind of stick to them. And I, I, I really want to change this year to be a, a year of drinking meaningfully. So, mm. so you're going to be tasting and it, spitting. Is that what you're going to be doing? Yeah. Okay. Well, you've taken wine courses, so you know. Yeah. Oh, I never spit though. <laughs> oh, I liked it too much. Yeah, for sure, for sure. But I mean, if you went through uh, a, a lot of wine in an evening, like when we did the competitions, we, you'd have hours and hours of wine. And after after ten things, you can't judge anything. You can't taste anything. Your palate yeah. is mixed up with everything else. So you do have to spit, and you get just as much out of it as if you actually swallowed anything pretty much okay the only downside to it is that if i'm doing that this year then all the food that i'm consuming is not going to be it's going to be the acoustic version i say of dinner instead of the 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 wall of electric amplifiers behind right well do together yeah and that's actually something i wanted to talk there are a few things i wanted to talk about like picking up on a few points you made one is uh restaurants buying wines on consignment, like from an agency like yours, as opposed to the LCBO, on the one hand, I guess it's great for the restaurant. As a Mm -hmm. diner, I can see where it can be frustrating because we, if we love this bottle of wine, we're like, oh, but we can't get it at the LCBO. We have to buy it from an agency, which means we have to buy a case or half a case or something like that. So that's a little bit frustrating. But during the pandemic, the one great thing was all the restaurants opened up their wine cellars. So you could actually now buy wine directly from a restaurant, which I think is fantastic. I, (laughs) you're like on one side of the wall and I'm on the other. I know what you're saying. And and that makes total sense. But uh, by the case or not, I'm, I'm in the middle of it all. So so restaurateurs have been buying from consignment just to ensure that they're going to keep getting the same vintages of what they've been putting on their list forever. Because a lot of these guys, um, they only change their wine program once a year or maybe once every couple of years. Like I deal with some chain restaurants like the Keg and they have a tasting month. They have in, in the spring, they look at their menu and, and go to ha- go ahead and redo things. But once they redo something, you know, you go to a a chain restaurant like that and you look at the menu it's maybe it's sealed in plastic maybe it's 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 behind its thing they're not going to change it so they don't want to run out of anything so the consignment thing works so people us the the customers who walk in the door of the restaurant aren't buying them out of their stock for the rest of the year so it's Mm. a card for them and it's also a little mystery to see what the price on the menu is compared to what they're Right. I think we all have an expectation that we're paying a markup and, you know, because you're not just paying for the bottle of wine, just like, you know, even if you think about the food, you're not paying for the ingredients, you're paying for the whole thing, the experience, you know? Um, So like, even though I love cooking, I also love going out for dinner because it's nice to have somebody else do the cooking for a change, somebody else to shop and clean up and, you know, serve me and all that kind of stuff. Right. So it's not just about, the cost of the ingredients and the cost of the labor. It's just the entire experience, you know, and I actually like seeing um, 
a restaurant's wine menu where it's where it isn't all stuff off uh, like from the LCBO. And then it makes me have to think a little bit more and then also engage with the sommelier and say, Hey, this is what I usually drink. And Mm -hmm. I like this and I don't like that. And what can you recommend? And I haven't been steered wrong very often, to be honest, most of the time, the SOM in the restaurant gets it right. They make a recommendation and it ends up being perfect. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the job is to have you come back again. So mm-hmm. the wine list starts at, at $43 and goes to, you know, $3,900 a bottle or whatever it is. A suggestion would be made to you to go with what you're having and, and to make sure that you're happy with it. So it's, I mean, that's, that's what, when you, when you do f- get into fine dining, it gets a little steeper, a, a lot quicker, but the idea is to retain you as a customer. So uh, those wine lists get stocked with things that make sense for the for the menu and for the for the level of of service that they uh, hope to have. So consignment it's a big deal for that. And you know the other thing too, if I go into a restaurant now, but it might be different for me. But if I go into a restaurant now and I look at the list and all of a sudden I see this is the LCBO, this is this is this is this is, I kind of think they're just going in and buying like we are. So the thought, where's the thought process? Is it with your food, are you matching the ones to your food or are you just buying alcohol to put with your food so people will buy the alcohol? It's Mm -hmm. two different things. So you like to see that the restaurant has put a bit more thought into um, their wine list than simply picking popular things from the LCBO. Yeah. um, The idea, well, what I'd like to see is everything from my company on every menu. Of (laughs) course. But beyond that, it's something that we don't carry because a lot of things, the thing about the wine business too, is that uh, it's like, it's like anything else where you bring on clients and you have accounts, they come and they go. So the, the big names that we've had that we've lost, I like seeing them somewhere else. I know that, um, I don't, know, don't really want to give press to too many people, but there, there are large, large producers that we've had and that we've lost. But if I go to a restaurant and there's nothing from us on the menu, that's not going to kill me. And I'm usually it's half, 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 you know, 50, 50 anyway, because I already know what everything tastes like that we sell and the place, the things that we haven't sold before the producers that we don't deal with that I know well, because they're just, you know, important in the wine world or that we had them in the past. I like to see them on the menu and you can tell that you go into a restaurant where it's the same names that you could crack open in a textbook or that were at the, the New York wine um, um, show last fall or whatever, the ones that are not just trendy, like forget trendy, but the people that have been working forever to retain their own level of, of expertise and, and, and professionalism. If they're out there, then you know that somebody's paying attention and that they're, they're trying to present everything as a, as a unit rather than just booze for their food. Right. Exactly. Um, let's shift gears a little bit because I want to start drinking. Okay. <laughs> what time is it? <laughs> it's not quite a cocktail hour, but, um, so you made a recommendation. So when I asked you, if you would come on the podcast, I said, send me a recommendation for a bottle of wine that's under $30 that we can taste together. And the one you had me, um, buy is called the musician. Yeah. It's from Kunwara in, um, Australia. It's a Cabernet Shiraz blend. Tell uh-huh. me why you picked this wine and how should I go about tasting it? Well, you've taken wine courses. Yes. So how far did you get with wine courses? 
I don't know, I took two courses at George Brown, like level one, level two. Okay. We, we learned a lot. You know, I know, I know my basic grapes and regions and, okay. you know. Well, the thing is with being a, being a SOM, uh, <laughs> you wind up, it's the same sort of event that you have every time you have dinner with your family or friends and you go out, you sit down and someone brings a wine list to the table. Everyone kind of says, oh, no, no, you pick, you pick, you pick. It's like, just pick what you want, pick what you want to drink. But it always kind of gets left up to us. And if you end up studying something for years and years, you get you get good at retaining the knowledge. And you also, with tasting wine, you you just end up knowing what to expect. And you end up knowing um, before you even get it near your nose or your mouth, what you're going to be dealing with. And a lot of people think there's some, like, it's funny when people are blown away, like you stick your nose in a, in a glass and you say, okay, I'm getting this, this, and this, but like from this. So you give it a little swirl. What kind of glass have you got there? This, this is actually, uh, I, it's not any of the Riedel's that I've had or Spiegelo. This one is a Canadian tire glass. Wow. Okay. I'm, I'm drinking out of my super crazy expensive Zalto glass. You know, the thing with the glasses though, with Zalto or with Spiegelo or with Riedel, the more expensive it is and the thinner it is, the more I'm terrified to clean the thing. <laughs> I know. Well, that's why actually they tell you to put it in the dishwasher because most people break their glasses when they're washing them. And right. I put mine in the dishwasher very gingerly. I don't put anything around them and so far so good. Anyway, I've had I've had streaks though on the inside. It ends up getting cut up with the the detergent later. But all right. So what are we smelling in this? uh, Well, here's the thing. Do do we do we deal with the power of suggestion or do we do we go on our own? Okay, I will tell you the the first thing I kind of smelled in this. There was like a green pepper. I smelled a green pepper when I first took a a smell of this. What's that? Capsicum. Capsicum. Oh, okay. Um, I get dark fruit, I get raspberry and, and, um, like evergreen, like, uh, like cedar. Mm-hmm. So one thing though, and why I chose this wine back to the, the magic tricks that people think we do by looking at something or smelling something, um, there are telltale signs that make things easy. There's, there's a way to look at a glass with champagne in it or sparkling wine in it and before you get it near your face know if it's sparkling wine or champagne there are ways to tell just by sticking your nose in where it's from and it's not like you're this brilliant encyclopedic knowledge of of why you know things it's just like one or two signposts that are easy to identify that kind of turn things into a magic trick for people who don't really pay that much attention and the reason i chose this wine is because Cabernet from Australia, particularly uh, South Australia, where this is from, Kunwar, they grow a lot of, there's eucalyptus trees. Mm. And within cab from this part of the world, mint or eucalyptus is a identifier. So I don't know if you're going to stick your nose in the glass now and see if you are getting any eucalyptus yeah yeah i can i can smell it a little bit i'm still smelling the, the green pepper though but like there's an herbal quality to it like a veg, vegetable quality that's what i'm vegetal herbaceous yeah yeah it's dark fruit i mean yeah wine 
it's wines like this Shiraz you're gonna you're gonna get you're gonna get well brambly is a word that you'd use for for um, for Australian wines but you'll get dark fruit you might get plum you might get um, raspberry not a lot of strawberry in these wines strawberry is usually a, a, a note of a lighter wine but um, give a little take a little sip I'm gonna spit mine out though Okay, it's not as fruit forward as I thought it would be, because I always think of um, like New World wines as being a little bit more fruit forward than say like a, a French wine or Italian wine or something like that. It's It's got, this is the 2019, it's got grippy tannins. Yeah. It's it's a little heavier than medium body. It's a pretty heavy wine. Um, acid wise, acidity, you can feel... You can feel the acid. I don't know if you ever measured acid in a wine by taking a sip and then just holding your mouth open and seeing how quickly you drool or how much you oh, drool. Okay. See, I, I kind of go by like, do I feel it kind of along like the outside edges of the inside of my mouth? Like, do I feel that? But I guess, like you said, it's this salivation hmm. well, it just, urge. <laughs> it coats your teeth and just, yeah, you just, if it's high, the higher the acid, the more you're, you're given to be that drooling like that. Um, it's more tannic than it's well we're not having food right now this no. this goes, this goes with meat this goes with with the you know this is why one of it's one of the things on the list at the keg that uh if you go to your local keg this is one of the things i always get because i always know what i'm getting and and something that's got a little bit of herbaceous notes to it i mean there a lot of the italian wines are the first thing you'll get out of them are herbs before herbs before you'll get um any sort of other notes mm -hmm. so it kind of covers the board in a lot of respects. But the thing about it is if if we had two cabs side by side right now, you tasted this one, and I'm telling you, there's a eucalyptus mint note to it. And then you taste a cab from, from California or from, from France or from Argentina or from New Zealand, from anywhere else, you'll be able to tell them apart instantly because it's just, it's it's hard to have one wine right now. If we had a flight of wines and I asked you to go back to this, you'd probably pick it out so easily mm -hmm. but uh shiraz is is a it's a food friendly wine cab's a food friendly wine these are both this part of the world kunwara it's they're they're blenders because they they live side by side down there and and it's about um it's about the relationship between them in the glass if it, it, they fit pretty well i gotta take another sip they do fit very well together. I mean, you see that blend quite often, specifically in in Australia, um, a little bit in California. But um, are there any, like, say, regions in France where they blend uh, Syrah and Cab? Uh, well, France, um, Bordeaux is, they've always had, um, not Syrah, in the south they would mix, south of France is Syrah, but in, in Bordeaux, They'll mix even Malbec in there in, in Bordeaux, but you won't hear too much about it because they, they do mainly Petit Verdot, Verdot or, or um, Malbec in their, in their mixes. Syrah, I mean, it's only Shiraz in the States or yeah. in, in, in Australia. It's Syrah pretty much in the rest of the world. Um, and it's, it's, Cab is there for strength and body and 
the Shiraz is, is there for a little more of the fruit. There is fruit. It's very dark fruit, though. Mm-hmm. It's, it's blueberry and raspberry. But do you get mint in your glass now? I'm, I'm, I'm not forcing you to think that, but no, I'm just- No, no, I did. I did get it. Like eucalypt, like def- more eucalyptus than mint, for sure. Well, and it's funny. They blame, um, some people think the eucalyptus comes from the fact that there, there are uh, eucalyptus trees, forests around the vineyards, and they think these things get, get caught up in the, in the winemaking process. But it's not that. It's the skin of cow grapes is so thick it's a thick skin grape that the the terpenes in 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 the skin they hold everything i mean it could be it could be the the natural yeast that are floating around out there it could be everything that's the roots are pulling up out of the ground the deeper the roots go you know the more they're going to impart to the wine and the older they are they're going to the more they're going to impart so a thick skin grape uh, has a lot to do with why we would get, be getting mint from a red wine in that vineyard, because you could have the same vineyard making Chardonnay, but you wouldn't get any of the mint in the Chardonnay, and it's mm-hmm. from the same vineyard and from the same region, but the reason would be that you don't have the skin contact with the white wine that you do with reds. Reds, they're soaked in their skins, so everything's coming out of the skins, and there's a lot to be imparted. Right. Yeah, that's so, a good point. So, I mean, so the so when you work backward from this, let's say you have people over for a tasting and you've got three bottles of wine and one is a California cab, one is this wine or another one from Kunawara, and then there's something from France or something from South America. You'll be able to tell this one uh, because of, of, of the mint. I'm smelling it more now, like as it's been sitting out for a bit. Yeah. You know, when you go away from it and then you come back to it, yeah. right? Because you're, I guess your your nose has a chance to clear of, you know, whatever you were smelling before. Yeah, it opens up. It will, and it opens up too. The warmer it gets, it's going to change in the glass. And the longer it sits there, the more oxygen, uh, it's going to change it too. Mm-hmm. The more contact with oxygen. Yeah. But um, how would you say, um, so I was having a conversation with somebody recently about choosing wine and there's a specific menu that's um like indian type menu and they're trying to have a red wine and a white wine and i was like i don't know why you'd have red wine with indian food but anyway um i'm taking a bit of an aside here um how do you get people to maybe get out of their wine rut where people say i only drink red wine or i only drink white wine or i only drink wine from this region or whatever how do you get people out of that uh everybody falls into a rut the best way to do it would be um join a tasting group form a team okay because that was a great thing about about going through all the education with wine you're sitting in classrooms with people you know, this week we're doing Malbec. This week we're doing um, Semiel. This week we're doing fortified wines, whatever it is. So it's not like you say, oh, I'm not, I'm going to skip that class. It's not really something I like. You would taste everything. You would get something out of everything. And you would absolutely be turned into a fan of something that you didn't know you liked. If you didn't know what Alsace was before you started dealing with wine, all of a sudden you say, uh, oh my God, I'm a huge, uh, I'm a huge fan of, 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 um, of uh like Riesling or Riesling whatever exactly. Gewürztraminer or whatever from yeah. Alsace yeah so so it's 
this is the thing. If I, if I I'm not going to throw my family under the bus, but you go to a family <laughs> gathering or something, and you put a bottle of wine down, something you're really excited about, something different, and someone says, "I don't drink red" or "I don't drink white." It's yeah. like that's not the idea. You you're kind of missing. Everyone can do whatever they want with you know with their taste buds, but you're really missing out because the opportunity wine should be seen as something to, to chance to taste to experience rather than find what you like because i am completely guilty of having far too much california cab in the last five years ditto yeah me too and there's nothing wrong with that but i know for a fact that if that's where my taste buds really lie comfortably then i should have been in in spain as much drinking tempranillo because mm-hmm. it's the same thing but you do get stuck in a rut and i always Tell people, oh, you should be trying Zinfandel. We've got, there are some great Zinfandels out there. And every time I decide whether I'm going to have Zinfandel or Cab, I always end up not having Zinfandel. But you get into a tasting group, you force yourself to create an agenda for the week, and everyone brings their own thing sometimes. Or if one person runs it, they try and run the gamut of what's out there of, of to be available to taste. And you taste. And the greatest thing at a wine tasting, I used to do them in my house when we were having class. We do it weekly. You'd have 12 wines lined up in front of you and you'd be taking notes and you'd be more concerned with, with the, the measurement of the body of wine, the acidity and, and, and the alcohol level and the, the legs, the, the, um, the length of it that by the time you finish tasting and making your notes and have this conversation for two and a half hours, you just wanted to have a glass of wine at the end of it. But all of a sudden you're like, you know what? I'm going to have that Shiraz uh, Grenache Mourvedre. I've never had that one before. And it's amazing. Then you find out, oh my God, I'm a big fan of those three grapes. And then the next time you're in the LCBO, you That's see- That's me. GSM on it. You go, oh my God, I got to take that home with me. Yeah, I, I got, I like to say that I used to drink a lot of California cabs and, uh, and I, I love Tempranillo as well. So I would drink a lot of uh, Spanish Tempranillo. And then I had, and I've talked about this on the podcast and it's like, Leslie, don't talk about Coturon anymore because you talk about it all the time. But mm-hmm. I love Coturon. I yeah. love that GSM blend. It's just, it it's not the same every time because it depends on the the balance between whether it's more Grenache heavy or more Syrah heavy or whatever. And the price point is fantastic. They're like $17 at the liquor store. So like you yeah. can't go wrong with a. And so I tend to drink that more than anything these days. Well, that's the interesting thing about France and California. Some people in California kind of figured that one out too. And they brought our own grapes to France to, um, to California, but you get below Burgundy and you're in the Rhone Valley and all of a sudden you're near Chateau Neuf de Pop and they've got, they're using 13 different grapes. Yeah. So you, you buy, um, you can go wrong with anything, but I mean, generally the, the names that are in the, in the LCBO, um, you pick up a Chateau Neuf de Pop and you have it with, you can even have it before dinner, but you have it with food and it's just like, one of the greatest things you've ever had in your life and every house will be doing a different thing with the 13 grapes that they use and there's white grapes that are in there it's just so you start exploring things and you think well um maybe i'm a fan of viognier then you try white just solid viognier and and all of a sudden you decide that you like viognier and if but look what you were saying about uh cote de Rhone, 
it is it is one of the greatest places to to find quality wines because they're not chateau they're not uh domains they're they're farmers making wine like a lot of france is anyway even the greatest houses in burgundy day to day they're farmers sorry yeah yeah, and I think, you know, we have a tendency of romanticizing wine and winemaking and wineries and all of that. And, you know, yeah. the culture and, you know, it's all very hoity-toity and all of that. But like you said, in the end, uh, like at the end of the day, they are farmers. Like that is what they're doing. Oh, yeah. um, and I mean, I guess there's a there's a differentiation between the growers and the winemaker, or is it the same person depends. or does it depend? It depends. Uh, the The most expensive plot of of you know land on earth is in Burgundy, and the people who tend to the grapes are you know my cousin has this row and that row. My grandmother's been taking care of that one, and they've been doing it their entire lives because their grandparents were doing it too. And it gets split up. It's different where you are in, in Europe. Sometimes there's I mean France. There in it's by law you have to pass these things down the family but then if you're in bordeaux and you're working at a chateau it could be an acquire someone someone purchases the mm -hmm. house and things change but you can be you could be a grower you can be a negotiant that just buys wine from other people that buys bottled wine from other people that buys labels from other people and sells them um, you could be a grower that uh, only sells to other vineyards you could be a virtual vineyard, uh, a garagiste, the guys that make so few cases that you could have a, you don't need a vineyard. You just need, you could be working out of a garage. They buy grapes from someone who's reputable. They, they have a winemaker who's reputable, reputable, make their virtual wines and sell them under a different label. There's a lot of different ways you can go. And that's the great thing. There, there are, I've seen some podcasts, some wine podcasts, and they talk about taking the snobbiness out of, out of wine culture. And I don't really think there's a need to take the snobby, snobbiness out because really what you're saying is don't overthink it and let's make it easy for everybody. But the more you learn about it, the more you might find things that you like. And if you learn enough about something, all of a sudden you realize uh, that's not worth it. The money, I see what this is costing me in the store. I know this is a much better buy because I know I love these grapes or I know I love these producers or this part of, of the, of, of the Cote de this particular clove or whatever, they can't go wrong. This is the best place to spend your 29 bucks instead of 45 there mm -hmm. or 50 there instead of 120 there. It's, there's nothing wrong with with educating yourself a little more on these things. And I don't think education about wine makes you a snob. I think to me, like someone that I would say is a wine snob is someone who's like, well, I don't drink that. Like I'm not drinking that bottle or whatever, who thinks that they're above drinking a certain bottle of wine. To me, that's snobby. Or a wine snob is also someone who maybe judges somebody else for their taste in wine and says, well, you know, they drink blah, blah, blah. So, you know, yep. they drink Merlot or whatever you remember sideways. Um, uh, so like, that's what I see as being one wine snobs is people who are trying to maybe exclude people or trying to make themselves look better or more impressive because of what they drink or don't drink. Yeah. Um, whereas I want, I, I want everyone to drink all the wine, you know? Yeah. I mean, I could, I could give you labels. I could give you brands that are that are inexpensive there's nothing wrong with inexpensive what if you're inexpensive because 
Uh, you're a winemaker, a very, very large winemaker that that buys bulk wine that doesn't make it themselves. They just buy the juice because it costs a certain price. They don't put it in oak barrels because that's too expensive. So they just buy oak, oak chips, chips yeah. and put it in and or or they buy wines that that are um, carbonic maceration, that it's an easy thing. Instead of the labor it costs to, to do a punch down, to, to put grapes in a, in a bin, in an open vat and, and let it do its own thing, you have to either have people literally with, with plunger or sticks pushing down the cap so it lets things um, overflow, so it lets, lets things mix over time, or you can just close everything in, in a bin, pump it in with uh, CO2 until everything kind of crushes on itself, and everything that comes out of a, a carbonic maceration tank that you get in a bottle of, say, Gamay that costs... Uh, 14 bucks it, it's gonna probably have a nose of bananas on it. oh and and it might be interesting that's one of these wines too that you could you could find the method of carbonic maceration where they do pump gas into these vats and, and crush these things down without the labor and and just the way that they're made you're going to get banana out of it on your nose. So if someone tastes the wine and they immediately get banana out of it and they know that someone paid $13 for the bottle and they're, they're at a party, someone hands you a glass of wine, you're not going to say, oh, this is carbonic maceration. This is a gamay. I'm not drinking this. It's beyond me. But if you have that choice and then someone else has, say, something that you've recognized with the little coat of arms from, from uh, Shadow Nif to Pop, you go, can I have a glass of that? Mm -hmm. Because they know what you're going to experience from, from one wine, but you don't know what you're going to get from another. The more complex something is, the more you're going to get out of it. So uh, a bulk wine made with, with wood chips, if it goes with the burger and fries you're having in a restaurant, that's cool. People call wines that aren't high-end pizza wines or burger wines because mm -hmm. they're just the every, everyday things you do. I mean, everyone can't afford to drink, you know, 50 or 70 or 300 or $900 bottles of wine every day. Some people can, a lot of our clients can, and, and good for them. But uh, what's the most expensive bottle of wine you've tasted? The difference between the best bottle of wine you've ever had versus the most expensive bottle of wine you've ever had, because I'm guessing they're not necessarily the same. They're pretty close, though. Oh, OK. Uh, um, Tell me. OK, well, the like I was saying, uh, the most expensive plot of land on the planet is in Burgundy and the vineyard is Romani Conti. Mm -hmm. I've heard of it. Romani Conti has, I don't know how many labels we have. They have different vineyards. They're, the vineyards of, uh, of the Cote de Nui, there's, there's the Cote d'Or, which is, is Burgundy, and there's Cote de Nui and there's Cote de, de Bone. The Cote de Nui has um, just, the earth is magic. And everything about the temperature, everything is, is magic in that area. So um, seven or 800 years ago, there was an area called, the monks called Romani, because it was in, in you know, it was named after the Romans where, where, you know, vinification started with, with the Phoenicians and the Greeks and the Romans. So this was called Romany. And there was a count at some point in, I think the 17th century uh, Conti that took over the vineyard, bought it and decided that no one else deserved to have any of it. And the whole time he owned it, didn't share a bottle with anybody. So after he passed away, people started the government turned it over. It's, it's a UNESCO heritage fund now in the world. You can't, there's so much law involved with Romani Conti that it's, it's crazy. But um, 
their vineyards, they've got Eschazo, Grand Eschazo, Latash, Romani Conti's, Romani Conti. They've got uh, Montrachet, the only white they have, um, Le Corton, all these different hills, different vines, different vineyards, all beside each other, except Latash is in a different area. Um, they're the most expensive wines on the face of the earth. The, the Romani Conti this year, a 750 mil bottle that we sold, we might have got it for about $4,200 a bottle now. But right now, oh if you take up, if some, someone, you, you're not allowed to auction these things off anyway in Ontario, first of all. But if someone was to take that bottle now and wanted to sell it to somebody on the internet, they could sell it for $12,000 easy. Wow. But and, is that just people being like wanting to own a, like a, an expensive bottle or a very, you know, I guess there's not a big uh, inventory of them, right? There's not, there's not. It's a very limited section, a selection. And depending on the year, uh, Burgundy didn't have a great year. I don't know, what was it? 20, 2019 or 2020, it, the, the rain, some years, the frost and, and, and the rain at the wrong time uh, just kills the crops and you get half the yield you did the year before. So it makes it that much more expensive. But um in this case, it just so happens that if you've ever had these wines, it's an experience that you're never going to forget. And they are that expensive. And I would say the difference, there's a big difference here. They're just, that part of Burgundy is, is it has magical properties. It's just so much different. You'll know, you can just sit, you could sit with a glass like this and just not even drink it, just keep smelling it for the entire evening. And then you'd, you could sit with a glass. If you only knew, if you knew that you were only gonna get, you know, a quarter of a glass or half a glass, you could probably sit with it for the entire evening and not get bored and never forget about it because it tastes like nothing else that you're ever gonna have. There's- so where were you when you had it? Well, luckily, I mean, the reason that I can do this is that we've, I've been with the same company for 20 years. And when we put on our wine shows, they're massive. We do this Grand Cru wine show every two years. So on top of the wine shows, a lot of times we can't open these bottles. They're too expensive. And, mm. and some of our clients only call us to try and get in line to get these bottles. So you don't see them at the shows, but we usually have, um, there'll be a night the next night where we'll be at um, Casa Loma or something for a, a, a appreciation party for all the, the um, producers. And there are a couple fairly heavy hitters that, that are friends of friends and they'll, they'll bring out their bottles. So we'll have that evening. We might have, you know, something from 1929, a bottle from 1945, a, a, a half a case of something from 1978. And there's been, Romani Conti there that has, I've, I've never had Romani Conti's Romani Conti, but I have had, um, I think Richburg and I've had Latash, a couple of these things you get, you get, you get about less than that at the, mm. at the, at the table, but I've, I've been able because of where I work, I've been able to taste a lot of these things. And a lot of these things aren't things you could buy, but the point that you were making, uh, if you look to the other side of France and you look at, at um, Bordeaux, if you bought, you can buy Bordeaux futures every year. You can you can purchase. I've done that. But as soon as you get a bottle of Bordeaux, let's say you buy a a, a second label from a house like um, uh, Alter Ego or something like that, you could pop the bottle open, and as soon as you bought it, and immediately pour it in a glass, and you might not notice 
anything more from that wine than you did from a $50 cab from California because they aren't meant to be drunk for 15 or 20 years. So you have to wait. And most people don't. And most people don't ever have the chance to have a vertical tasting where they have had something that was two years old and five years old and eight years old and 10 years old to see how it matures and how it changes. If everyone was able to do that, none of us would ever open wine that we bought. We'd all just sit on everything because if you pay enough in the first place for something, you're paying because there's potential in the bottle. When you pay $20 for something, you know that it's not something you're going to put down. It's not something you're going to lay down. And it's going to turn into something else in 10 years. But when you do pay more for wine, you're paying because they know there's longevity in it because it's been built, prop not built, but just created properly. And it's it's been taken care of. So it's meant to age. The So back to the whole wine snobbery thing, the $20 bottles of wine that you're ready to drink now should be drunk now and can be drunk with, 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 with burgers and, and pizza and things things like that but the wines that are in the hundreds of dollars are there because they're meant to be created for long-term enjoyment and it's there is a world of difference because there's different reasons why wines were made they're, they're made to be con, to be consumed during harvest while you're working on the ones that are made to be sold at market while you're also dealing with the ones that you've been sitting in the back of your cellar that are going to be bottled to be sold at you know wealthy people out there all over the world or auctioneers or wherever it's going to be but it's expense does have something to do with it but there are a couple of wines that don't need more than a couple of years on them before you realize that there's a giant difference between this and um the stuff that you usually drink on a friday night yeah so going back to the point you made earlier about um you're talking about when you don't swallow the wine and you're because you're in this period of not drinking alcohol for some reason, but whatever. Um, and you, you made a comment about how the meal doesn't taste as good as the meal would taste if you were actually drinking the wine. So what is no. like your, some of your favorite food and wine pairings and what either makes the food shine or the wine shine or both? Uh, if I'm going to go into a restaurant that is, uh, let's say, I don't know, a road, let's say a Kelsey's, like uh, what other chains, like Roadhouse. Yeah, like Roadhouse, yeah. If, if I'm going to go into a place like that, I'm going to look at the wine list to see what they have, not to see what I'm going to have with dinner, just to see what they have. And then look at the, the menu to see what I'm going to have. If I'm going to have a burger, if I'm going to have nachos, or I'm going to have, I don't know, wings or something like that you're probably just going to order a wine to have with those things. But if I go to a high-end restaurant, you never look at the menu. Uh, well, you, I'm not, I'm saying this to be snobby. I never, <laughs> most people who are in the wine business, you never look at the menu until you look at the wine list to, or you do the opposite. You look at the, the, the menu before you look at the wine list, because you're going to see what you're going to eat. And in a higher-end restaurant, you can see, if they've got duck and lamb and uh, elk and bison and and you know there's foie gras or there's some hearty soup or something like that, then you can say, okay, am I going to go Burgundy? Am I going to go um, Napa? Am I going to go Spain? Am I going to go Portugal or, or something like that? So um, I I'll I'll match. It depends where you are. If I'm going to just go have a glass of wine somewhere on a Friday night. I'll, I'll order what I know they have that I like and order food and it won't matter. But 
I went out for dinner on New Year's and I knew I was going to be the DD and took a look at the at the the menu and picked out what I was going to have and had it with uh, sparkling water and you know my partner across the the table from me she sat there and ordered I ordered her a half bottle of of something really great that that I wish I was having and it didn't I, even taste like or and spit or not no no, no. Oh, I just knew knew I knew though because wine and food together it's 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 the only thing worth living for <laughs> oh, okay now we're getting to the real the real juice now right i mean you've got your family you've got love in your life you've got your job if it's your if your job is is your career and your career is your passion you've got that but when it comes to food you can sit and have kd and and a diet coke and you can you can do whatever you want you can enjoy whatever you want but some of the greatest things that I've ever experienced were at a table in a restaurant. And if you pick, if you, I mean, you can pick badly all the time, but if you've done it enough and, and like Groundhog Day, you don't, there is, you don't need to be a God. You just, maybe you've been around long enough that you've done this so many times that you kind of know what you're doing. Yeah. You pick food to go with the wine and you pick wine and they come and they bring the bottle and they open it up. And it's what you thought it was going to be. And the food is better than what you thought it was going to be. The two things together, it's like two plus two doesn't equal four. In this case, two plus two equals like 48 or 102 or 1007 or something. So um, as I sat there at New Year's having really great food, I just kind of felt like someone was strumming a ukulele behind me while there was a, 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 a full concert rack going on <laughs> the other side that I just wasn't getting. It's I think it's it's the danger of knowing what you can uh, you know experience and then going well I'm not going to do that tonight though but yeah. because I tell you though the first thing why I I stopped for a while you got to stop for a while anyway in our, in our business you can't constantly be consuming alcohol all the time because people get older and they get larger and and things you have to keep yourself healthy and you have to keep yourself interested but I just found that my senses snapped up uh, you know 50% after a week or so of of not consuming anything so mm. You have to kind of keep things going. Yeah, good. So um, I'm going to end this with, um, I mean, you've already had your Romani Conti. Do you have any other wines that are on your bucket list? Yeah, I I mean, I, I, I haven't been to Burgundy. I haven't. Oh, okay, so going to Burgundy would be in the bucket list. Going, yeah, there's a few places. There's there's a lot of Europe that I wish I could spend, um, I could afford to spend about, you know, five years, you know, because there's just so much out there and a holiday doesn't do it. And 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 it's um, tasting in your home doesn't do it. But there's just, there's a lot of great things that, it's just a mind opening experience wine is a mind opening experience. Like you were saying, you know, you might, you might, it's, there are some people that say, I don't like red or I don't like white, but if you, if you are joining a tasting group or you've got friends that get together on a Friday night and everyone is adventurous enough to change it up all the time, constantly try something else. It's, it's just amazing that, that, and what it'll lead to. I mean, if you end up tasting different wines and starting to enjoy certain things that you didn't know you were going to enjoy maybe you're cooking differently too maybe mm. maybe the the main things that remain stays in your life are now changing you know 
Yeah. So if I have like this little bit of uh, the uh, musician left over, what should I be having for dinner with this? Uh, <laughs> again, what I've done so badly over the years, because I've done it too many times. I, I'm guilty of, of, of getting a cheese and, and meat out of the fridge and making a charcuterie board for uh, eight people and, and, and having it and enjoying it. You know? I love that. I, I call, I used, before it was called charcuterie board, I called yes. it things on a plate. So I would sure. have like a little bit of cheese and I'd have some pickles and I'd have some pate and I'd have some salami and some yeah. grapes and some crusty bread and all of that. And that was, to me, was like the best meal, things on a plate. Now it's yeah. called charcuterie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. Well, cheese, cheese was always, it's always a great thing. I mean, if, if you can have, uh, seven or eight different cheeses in the in the in the drawer at home that might be all you need for wine if you don't feel like cooking if you feel like cooking uh shiraz and cab can do anything you could be having steak or lamb or especially i mean nobody when was the last time you you talked about a lamb recipe that had mint sauce in it oh like yeah mint and lamb they just go together but, it, but it's it's a fairly old recipe and it hasn't been done in a long time but i mean yeah. you could you could do almost anything with with uh with cab with the cabernet sauvignon and with with shiraz they're they're meat oriented things they're they're gonna they could overpower certain things but i mean with cheese or with meats you're you're never going to go wrong but you asked me about a pairing uh i would say the my greatest my favorite thing to do is is make uh my own steak tartare mm. go to the butcher and buy a, a piece of a loin and bring it home slice it up, mix it up with everything else, put it in the fridge. But I found, I was at a steakhouse in Toronto one night and everyone was drinking scotch. And I'm not a big scotch drinker. I like, uh, I like bourbon. I'm not a big fan of scotch, but there was a glass of scotch in front of me and I love um, steak tartare. So I ordered steak tartare and I was blown away by what a glass of scotch and steak tartare will do for each other. Mm. The classic match is burgundy, but it, it was just... One of those things where you could just eat a little meat, have a little sip, have a little crusty bread or whatever it was that went with it, and that was, I think, that was supposed to be the the uh, the first course for the for the dinner. But I think I just sat and ate that twice. Oh, okay, <laughs> yeah. Like I was, I was going to say that I think you know, we kind of get into these habits of like, oh, I'll just open a bottle of wine and have a glass of wine after work or, you know, whatever, without really giving a lot of thought to what we're going to have that wine with. So maybe that's something that I would want to leave the listeners with, which is this idea of like, maybe being a little bit more deliberate about your wine choice as it relates to what you're having for dinner, rather than just going to the same old, same old bottle that goes with everything or that you think goes with everything. I'd say it's a good dare. It's a good competition. A good thing to plant somebody's mind to not go back to the same bottle because you already know you like it. But um, I would say, I would say if it depends what's more important to you, if you're, if it's Friday night, you're coming home and you're starving and you've got something in mind and you've got time to cook, it's even better. If it's the food, then match the wine to the food. But if you've got a wine that you have had uh, or that you've been dying to try, then mash the food to that. But I, this is the year for me to be mindful of what I'm drinking. So, and especially if we're going into a recession right now, I mean, everyone's making it worse right off the bat, but if, if, if you have to be a little more concerned about what you're bringing home from the grocery store and the liquor store and everything else, it's kind of an opportune moment to give everything a little more thought and maybe enjoy things a lot more than just if you're grabbing 
from the Ontario section or from the California section. And, you know, I heard somebody in the grocery store last week complaining that she picked up celery and she said, eight bucks, forget it, put it down. And went somewhere. <laughs> so yeah. it's a good year to think about these things because we've gotten through COVID and now we're facing something else. So it's, it's, time to put on your thinking cap, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, your idea about having a tasting club to kind of get you out of your, your drinking rut, so to speak, or your, your wine rut is a, is a great thing because it's an investment. The bottle of wine's an investment. And if you can share that with six or eight other people, and then you get to try six or eight different types of wine in one exactly. night. And, yeah. and if, you, if you know somebody, if it's not you, who's, who's a, a wine lover or aficionado or you know half an expert or whatever if somebody in your circle of friends is is a bit of a smart ass that knows something about wine that won't suck all the oxygen out of the room take advantage of them and see if you can figure <laughs> out something that they know so if you're doing this i keep going on and on here but if you're doing this do you recommend that it's uh like a blind tasting uh what i did with my group and it's not my my invention but what we would do i would have I, I won't say styrofoam because that's a bad thing to say, but at the time, a decade ago, we'd had styrofoam cups and we'd cover them with a, a tinfoil poke and we'd put white pepper in one or, or Dijon mustard, mustard in one or strawberries in one or, or, or lime or something. Have about 12 of those things covered up, pass them around the group. And it's amazing what you're trying to smell when you can't see it and you have no idea what you're looking at, how difficult it is to tell the difference between black pepper and white pepper or garlic and sage or strawberry mm -hmm. and raspberry. It messes you up when you can't see it. We always started with that to kind of get your nose going, but you, you could pick a grape, have everyone bring a Syrah or a Shiraz or, or, or Chardonnay. And some people would bring one that was uh, in, in wood done, done in Oak and, and some that aren't because some people say, I don't like Chardonnay because they've been drinking things that were heavily oaked, but you don't know. So you could pick a grape or you could pick a region, but uh, blind tasting. I, I went and bought, you know, a sack of black socks from, from the dollar store and just put them all on the bottle. So you just saw the lid. Like another giveaway would be if it's a screw top or not. Right. You know, it's going to be from Australia or New Zealand. Well, or Ontario. You, well, it could be Argentina. It could be Ontario, but you just know it's not going to be Bordeaux. Right. You yeah. know, it's not going to be. So, but if you get beyond that, if you put the sock just high enough that you can't even see the closure, um, it really messes you up. And all of a sudden it becomes uh, that board game. Instead of playing cranium or something, you're doing something, you know, a little more adult. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds great. Well, so where, thank you for joining me. Where can people follow you online? Do you post about wine or um, anything I, interesting? I will be posting. Um, I, I recently, I got hacked back in, in uh, October. So I lost my accounts that I had. I was James the Psalm on Instagram. Right. I was looking for you on there. I'm like, why can't I find you? And then I saw something about like, you posted something that said post exile. I'm like, what does that mean? What happened? Yeah. I got knocked out. Something <laughs> crappy happened. Could happen again too. So who knows? But uh, I was James the Psalm. Now I'm, uh, what am I? Rock and grapes or grapes and rock. Rock and grapes. Yeah. Rock and grapes. But the new, but then the other one that I have now is something to talk about. Oh, is that your podcast? Yeah. That's the other um, Instagram that I have going now. That's what's the podcast. It's going to be coming. I guess it's maybe two or three weeks, maybe even February. I'm going to start it. Uh, it's uh, the Instagram that is already there. You can reach me at James at Um, But yeah, Instagram, my new Instagram is uh, what it is. It's not what it was anymore. It's okay. terrible. 
don't get hacked because I'll tell you right now, there's nobody on Facebook or Instagram that will ever help you. I know. I know. I've heard. I've heard. So you said the other uh, Instagram account is at some thing to talk about. Yeah. If, if okay. you, it's, it's all underscore stuff. But okay. You, I'll, I'll look it up and I'll post it in the show notes so that people can follow you if they want to. It's uh, that thing. If you just, oh, there. Okay. I see. There's underscores between the words. And, okay. and actually, Leslie, I'll, hold, I'll show you something since you're just since we're finishing up here, if you got a second. Yeah. Uh, this is the, that's the emblem for the, for the, the, the JPEG for the shot, but that oh, okay. bottle. The Romani Conti. Yeah. It's, it's got a broken bottom on it. Uh-huh. In 2011, that's a Magnum too. In 2011, that $5,000 bottle was rolling around in my vehicle and <gasps> it cracked Oh, and no. all I heard was glug, 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 and I panicked and pulled over. And it, it turned out that the LCBO had bought, opened this box up. They they checked things, taken all the hay, the stuffing out, looked at the bottles, put them back in without any of the packing, and closed it back up. So I broke a bottle. Uh, it wasn't my fault, and they they took credit for being the 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 people that did it. But it was worth ten thousand dollars the day <sighs> I broke. So oh my God, <laughs> I could not have paid that had I needed to, but yeah, uh, no kidding. No kidding. So. Well, thank you for sharing all your expertise with me and, and my 40 or some odd listeners. <laughs> and hopefully I can like point them your way uh, for your podcast as well. So thanks again. Well, I hope I said something worthwhile and okay. uh, had fun looking at what you've been doing and uh, maybe we'll do this again. Okay, cool. Thanks. My thanks again to James uh, for coming on the podcast to share his wealth of experience about um, wine and the wine industry, how to go about tasting. Um, I loved his suggestions about starting a, a tasting group, uh, which we talked about towards the end, um, especially now that there are you know fewer restrictions around uh, people gathering together, uh, get together with six or eight of your best friends. Everybody brings a bottle and, and try something um, a little bit different and maybe Maybe you can get out of a wine rut that way. Um, also, you know, the idea of pair and how pairing food and wine uh, is so important and picking the right wine to go with your food in order to enhance both. So the right food enhances the wine and the right wine enhances the food. So that's something that I'm always uh, a little bit um, mindful of when I'm when I'm picking wine. Uh, anyway, thank you so much for sticking through this really long conversation about wine. Uh, what I'd love to hear from you is, do you are you part of a wine club um, or a wine tasting group? And if you are, hook me up with that, <laughs> especially if you're in Toronto. I'd love to participate. Um, the other is, uh, if you have a recommendation of a wine, something that maybe is off the beaten path a little bit, I'm always up for trying something new and different and getting out of my own wine rut. So I would love to hear what you are trying. And uh, and also if you've tried something new that you uh, maybe have not tried before and why we should try that. So yeah, I would love to hear from you on Instagram in, you know, in all the usual places at noreciperequired.ca on Instagram. Um, and uh, you can also follow me. Uh, on, I have a Facebook group, noreciperequired.ca all those places. So would love to hear from you. So please uh, do share your favorite wines with me. Anyway, thanks again for listening and uh, keep on drinking and cooking.